Hello and welcome to The Brain Care Podcast, a practical and impactful series of snappy episodes on how to optimize your mental health and performance so you can reach your full potential. My name is Dan Murray-Serta and I'm the co-founder at Heights. We make smart supplements and clever content with the world's leading experts to help you take care of your brain so it can take care of you. Welcome back to the Brain Care Podcast Sleep Special with the sleep scientist, Dr. Sophie Bostock. Now, in the last episode, we touched on why people will be struggling to sleep in times of uncertainty and how to alleviate that. In this episode, we're going to focus more on some of the practical tips, habits, and indeed nutrients that can help you with your sleep. So welcome back, Sophie. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. As you know, my particular flavor of insomnia was due to a biological rather than psychological issue when it came to sleep. So I just simply wasn't feeding my brain what it needed to thrive. And as a result, I was struggling. Now, like, let's start at the nutritional level. What nutrients do we need for an improved night's sleep that we should be getting in our regular diets uh, from what you've seen? I promise to answer that question. But first, I have to do a minor caveat because there's going to be lots of people that hear that and they say, um, oh, how do I know if I've got a nutritional or a a biological, psychological problem? And and so I always say it's very difficult to tease the two out. So even when, you know, all your brilliant specialists did perhaps was give you a, a supplement, what they also gave you was reassurance. And because we know that anxiety about sleep is one of the things that really interferes with sleep, and perhaps she said, you know, take it at the same time every day, and people will start to perhaps change their routine as well as taking the supplement. There's kind of lots of pluses sometimes. So we may not be able to separate them. So even giving somebody a placebo and telling them something is going to be good for their sleep on average, helps them fall asleep 20% faster. So all this means is that when we look at the nutrition research, we have to be really careful before we put all of our confidence behind something which, which looks good because it's got to be better than placebo. And those studies are starting to be done, but I think it's still very early stages. Yeah, I think you mentioned something to me earlier about you know the Mediterranean diet that was particularly uh, fascinating for you. Yeah, so this is all relatively new. The last couple of years, it's been shown that the Mediterranean-style diet, which is very rich in fruit and vegetables and fibre, olive oil, fatty fish, nuts and seeds, we've seen that people who have a greater um, proportion of their diet made up of kind of that Mediterranean-style content tends to have better sleep. Whereas we know that people who tend to consume more processed foods, higher saturated fat, higher sugars tend to have poorer sleep. So there's a a number of reasons for this. We know that the Mediterranean diet is more of an anti-inflammatory diet and that might help to reduce pain, which is one of the things that interferes with sleep. Sleep and the immune system are very tightly linked. But we also know that the Mediterranean diet feeds the microbiome, which helps to create hormones like dopamine, serotonin and GABA, which are all associated with the sleep process. And it might actually be that improvements in mood and reductions in anxiety could be some of the things that are helping to improve sleep. But it could also be down to the micronutrients. And this is where there's a little bit less research from big observational studies. We know that Poorer sleepers tend to be more likely to be deficient in things like vitamin D, uh, magnesium, vitamins E and C, which are antioxidants, um, some of the B vitamins. You know, there's a whole mixed picture. But in order to be more confident that 
using these nutrients is going to improve our sleep. And this is where the science is a little bit light, thin on the ground, I suppose. When we look at supplements, oh, we really need much better research. I think, you know, even for the the most established ingredients like tart cherry juice, which lots of people, nutritionists will recommend, you know, we've got research probably in total on 50 people, whereas actually some of the more established psychological interventions have got studies in thousands of people from hundreds of studies. So it doesn't mean that nutrition isn't important, but it does mean that the precise mechanics of who needs what and when are still things which are a little bit subject to trial and error, I think. And obviously more in, more so in America, but very common is melatonin, right? Which sounds like it makes plenty of sense anyway to have that in supplement form, but certainly not not over the counter available in Europe. Yes, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. So we know that melatonin, the hormone, helps to prepare the body for bed. It's, it helps to regulate that body clock and, and stimulates the brain to know that it's nightfall. It's the hormone of darkness. But actually, in terms of sleep, it's quite a weak sedative effect. And so if you suffer from insomnia, melatonin is probably not going to be the solution. On average, I think one study, one review found that found that it only helped people fall asleep seven minutes faster. But if you've travelled across time zones, then melatonin is quite helpful to regulate the clock. And the older you get, the less melatonin you produce naturally. So potentially the more likely you are to need a supplement. So one of the other common errors I think loads of people make is in hydration, right? So one of the common things we get, you know, drinking too late in the day and then needing to, needing to go to the toilet, right? So that's a very classic one. Do you have any tips or insights or experience shares of people about keeping their bladders empty beyond the incredibly obvious go to the toilet earlier? So I think one thing, again, is reassurance. You know, it's perfectly normal to get up once to go to the toilet at night. And as you get older, that does tend to become more frequent. It's usually recommended to reduce your fluid intake, perhaps two to three hours before bed. But again, this is a time when having a diary can be quite helpful, because if you start to reduce your fluid intake and you're not actually noticing any difference to that nighttime wakening, then, you know, that's something that you might want to discuss with your doctor. I think the other thing that's interesting about fluid intake at night is if you're finding that you've got to wake up to drink something because you've got a very dry mouth that might be a sign that actually you've been breathing more through your mouth than your nose and we know that nasal breathing is much better for your overall health it seems to be associated with lower fatigue Um, we also think it's less likely to be associated with sleep apnea which is a condition where people have breathing issues overnight so if you do frequently have a dry mouth then you might want to think about looking into that interesting food for thought for me then um although i have just got my invisalign so it might also have something to do with with that as well Okay, in your experience, what kind of daily habits can we try to integrate into our life that are going to improve our ability to sleep well? I think it starts with mindset. You know, it's the more that you see sleep as this kind of foundation that helps you build other habits. There's no doubt that better sleep helps you with self-control. So, um, you know, if you're somebody who likes to plan your diet and you plan your exercise, then think about your week looking ahead. You know, will you be able to get that seven to nine hour sleep window? Most adults are recommended to get between seven and nine hours sleep. But our sleep efficiency in terms of the amount of time in bed that we spend asleep is even for a great sleep 
sleeper, only about 90%. So ideally, we want at least eight hours actually in bed to give us a good shot of that sort of seven hours plus of sleep. The second thing would be, we've talked about what you eat, but not when you eat. And in today's world, when we're all so massively busy, there's always a temptation to sort of save that lovely evening meal for a time when things are a bit calmer, perhaps after the kids have gone to bed. But actually eating late at night, we've said that it's one of those cues to your internal circadian rhythm that wakes you up. It actually also increases your body temperature. And that can interfere with falling asleep. So ideally, eat your evening meal at least two hours before you want to get into bed. And then I mentioned at the start of the first episode that a lot of people are in this state where they're kind of quite quite stressed. Sleep deprivation leads to increased stress and that meditation can be very, very helpful. But I work with a lot of people who struggle to meditate. They're actually kind of quite wired you know you get this tired but wired where you're not sleeping well so you've got increased adrenaline increased cortisol and the idea of sitting there meditating for like half an hour that's incredibly hard so cut yourself some slack and just start with blocking out 15 minutes in your calendar during the day to do nothing I'm not going to force you to meditate. I'm um, not going to force you to do anything at all, but just switch off, switch off from technology, switch off from work and give yourself 15 minutes to just get used to slowing down. Because I think one of the problems is if you only slow down after you've switched off the night at light, sorry, the light at night, then your brain just doesn't know what to do with itself. You've still got all of this processing to do. So allow a little bit of time earlier in the day when you can just sort of catch up and get used to being a little bit more relaxed. Great. Okay. And I mean, this is a question that's it's coming from a sort of place of selfishness, to be honest, but there's a lot written about sleep debt and the fact that you don't really make it up. But at the same time, and I say this as an expecting father to a baby daughter in August, I remember having this conversation with you when we first started Heights and we were talking about all this. And I remember you pointing to the fact there isn't really any evidence to prove, for example, that parents die earlier than non-parents. So surely that's the greatest, larger study that's ever been done on on you know sleep deprivation um, in different groups. So what's really going on here? What is the truth? Yes, you are absolutely right. We can give you and many other parents some reassurance. I think... What's likely to be going on is that, you know, we know over generations that that small humans have always required a lot of work. So I don't think we need to panic. And in fact, if your sleep becomes disrupted for a number of weeks or even months, you know, there's every chance that this is not going to have long term impacts on your health. What it will do is cause acute issues like irritability, lack of memory, lack of concentration. And, you know, you won't be able to pay those back you know, that's still going to have disrupted the next day. But long term, we don't think that those things always have an impact. I think as we get older, there is evidence that our circadian rhythms are a little bit less elastic. So, for example, we struggle to cope more with shift work as we get older. So it might well be that prolonged exposure to sleep deprivation and prolonged circadian disruption these things start to have a cumulative effect. So I think at whatever age you are, if you're struggling to cope with poor sleep, despite adequate opportunity to sleep, there are are lots of effective treatments available and probably cognitive behavioural therapy is probably the best place to start. 
Great. Well, I mean, if that's the best place to start, what are the best places to avoid? And by that, I mean, what are your favorite sleep myths that you'd like to debunk here? So popular stories people will hear or tell themselves that aren't necessarily true. Again, it's a lot of it's down to reassurance that, you know, it, just because you wake up during the night, that doesn't mean there's something horribly wrong with your sleep. That's perfectly normal. We all wake up for short periods of wakefulness. The other thing is that I think particularly at the moment, and I'm sitting here with uh, a wrist tracker. I've also got an aura ring. I was just so intrigued that I had to try it out. And, you know, in the couple of weeks that I've had it, I've noticed that there is relatively moderate correlation between these two trackers. So what you read about the accuracy of these things, you know, it's probably pretty good for the overall amount of sleep. But any tracker is probably accurate in terms of the actual sleep stages about 50 to 60% of the time. Some of them might be slightly better. But because we don't yet have a recipe for the perfect night of sleep, we know that it changes. We know that it changes from night to night. You know, if you've run a marathon, you're probably going to have more deep sleep, which is going to help you physically restore. So don't read too much into these trackers. And now having multiple ones of them, you know, I can see that it leads to anxiety. I was like, yeah, I'll publish my sleep data. And the moment I thought that, my sleep started going out the window. So, you know, if it is starting to worry you, take it off, put it in a drawer until you're a little bit more relaxed about it. Very fair. Okay. As this is the Brain Care podcast, the question we like to ask all our guests is what does brain care mean to you? And how does it manifest in your life? I do love that term. Uh, I think to me, it means doing things which mean that you're living like the best version of yourself more of the time. Um, and if there is a magic bullet for brain care, it has to be sleep. After all, it is the process through which we take toxins from the brain, we consolidate memories, we enable ourselves to learn, we renew our self-control, we supercharge the immune system, and best of all, it's totally free. So it's, it's my favourite. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Brain Care Podcast. Don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And follow us at Your Heights on Instagram and Twitter for daily doses of brain care. Did you know Heights started as a newsletter that I've written every week for years? I'm still doing it, and I'd love it to reach your inbox too. So for weekly science-backed emails on the best ways to take care of your most important organ all in under three minutes, sign up at yourheights.com forward slash Sundays. See you next week. <music>